All right, Grace Community Church, we come now in our worship of our great God together. We come now to the preaching of the word. And I want to invite you this morning to turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And as you turn there this morning, we're going to call on the name of the Lord together. And we're going to ask for God's help to teach us his word, to reveal to us the glory of Christ. And so let's pray. Father, we come to you again this morning, and our hearts bless your name. Lord, you are our creator and you are our redeemer. God, we belong to you. You own us, Lord. Twice over, we are yours. You made us and you have washed us from our sins in your own blood. Lord, and we, your church this morning, we bring every soul before you this morning, every soul in this room, God, and we ask that you would reveal your glory. Lord, we ask this morning that you would cause your word that you breathed out to run to and fro in our midst and to accomplish your word in our hearts. God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see your truth this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would incline our hearts to fear your holy name. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we are going to read God's holy word together this morning. And I know Ron did this earlier, but I want to invite you to stand again. It's a longer passage for the reading of the word of God, Matthew chapter 12. And we'll begin in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first he binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will, will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. 
You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. All right, we have a lot to cover in this passage this morning. And so we're going to walk right through this passage together. Our church is committed to expositional preaching. And that means that we want to do the best we can every week that the point of the sermon is the point of the passage, that the things we're preaching to the church are coming right out of the text. And so we're going to walk through this text together this morning, taking it section by section. And we'll start with that first section, verses 22 through 24. We see charges laid upon the Lord Jesus. And you remember in the past several weeks, we're in Matthew 12, and a theme running through this whole chapter is conflict with Jesus and his enemies. We see conflict with the Pharisees several different times. And, in, and the occasion here that causes these charges to be made is a miracle. We are told in that opening verse that a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, I mean, Everything was wrong to him, with him. He's brought to Jesus and made completely well. He's made completely new. This is done publicly before a crowds who are around him. He's, the demon is driven out. He's seeing and he's speaking. He's made completely well by the power of Jesus. And this miracle polarizes those who saw the authority of Jesus exercised. And that's what the authority of Christ always does. It polarizes into two camps. And we see those two camps in this passage. First, we have the response of the crowds. And we see this in verse 23. They see that miracle that Jesus performs on this man. And their response is this question, can this be the son of David? Now, in order to understand what's going on here, you got to know your Old Testament. That name David comes out of the Old Testament, this famous king in Israel, but more than a famous king. David was the recipient of a promise from God in 2 Samuel 7. God promised King David that one of his offspring, one of his sons, would sit on the throne of Israel, listen, forever. That through this line from David, the son of David was going to be a forever king in Israel. One who would reign and of the increase of his government, there would be no end. A forever king. And so the crowd see this miracle happen. And their conclusion is, could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah? Could this finally be the son of David, the long-awaited deliverer? And this is the trigger that causes the Pharisees to lash out against the Lord Jesus Christ. The crowds have this messianic curiosity and the Pharisees respond with murderous hatred towards the Lord Jesus 
And they lay their charge in verse 24. What do they say? The crowd say, can this be the son of David? But the Pharisees say, he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Now that's just another name for Satan in this first century context. And so understand the charge that is being made against Jesus Christ. They see this exorcism. And, you know, the interesting thing here is that's not being disputed. Neither is the healing being disputed. It's so public, it's undisputable. In other words, the enemies of Jesus are not saying, he didn't heal that man. He didn't drive out that demon. They're not saying, they can't say that. They're not saying that and they can't. Instead, they're calling into question the source of his authority, the source of of his power, and they say he gets his power from Satan. In other words, they are charging and slandering the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel, the Righteous One, the only one who has stood with two feet on planet Earth and never sinned. They are saying he's a sorcerer. This man does his miracles by dark magic. He's nothing but a servant of Beelzebul, a servant of of Satan. And if you turn back a few pages in Matthew's gospel, this is not the first time that they have laid this charge upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to Matthew chapter 9 and we'll read 32 through 34. As they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to Jesus. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. So it's not the first time this charge has been made. Jesus has not responded to this charge publicly yet. He's about to. He's about to respond to that charge. It's again made in Matthew chapter 10. Look at verse 25. Jesus says to his disciples, If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And that's a reminder to us, if they called our Lord a Satan-worshipping sorcerer, what kind of treatment are you to expect, Christian, from this world? Are you expecting better treatment from this world than our Lord received from this world? And so receive that question from Jesus. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign us, his servants? So we have the charge made in Matthew 12. Earlier in verse 14 in Matthew 12, we, uh, Matthew told us that these Pharisees are already conspiring to kill Jesus Christ. They have a murder plot in their hearts. Matthew 12, 14 says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And so what we see happening in the rest of chapter 12 is before these men actually kill Jesus, they're going to attempt to murder his reputation. That's what slander does. They're slandering the king of glory. He is a servant of Satan. He does his miracles by the power 
of Beelzebul. Now, we're going to see Jesus refute these charges in the next section, verses 25 through 30. Let's start with verse 25. This is just an aside. As we read the Bible, the glory of Christ, it just jumps off the pages. It's not even you know, the main point of this text, but it's just the glory of Jesus is revealed. Verse 25 says that He knew their thoughts. Now think about that. We've already seen this in Matthew before. Think about what that's, that's, that reveals the glory of Jesus. That the hidden things to us, they're not hidden to Him. He sees inside of men. He knows the thoughts of His enemies. And this is part of His glory. And the Bible is clear on this. That our hearts, every heart, is exposed to Jesus. In other words, He doesn't just see the things that we do on the outside. The Lord Jesus peers to the depths of who we are. And everything that we think, everything that we feel is exposed to Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember the story in the Old Testament of Hagar, after she was cast out by Sarah and Abraham... There's an account that, that the Lord appears to Hagar in the wilderness. And one of the names given to God in the book of Genesis by Hagar is she, she names God Elroy, which means you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees. And this is the attribute that we're seeing displayed in the glory of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the one who sees us. Jesus, therefore, Jesus is the one who knows us because he sees all things and there's no secrets. There's nothing hidden from Christ. All that we are is known to Jesus. Now, that attribute of Jesus Christ is a terror to the wicked and a comfort to the righteous. Okay. It is an absolutely terrifying thing to the unrepentant who has not repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ to know that every single sin that you've ever committed in your entire life, even the thousands that you have forgotten about, He sees them all. And they're all before Him. And nothing is hidden from the Lord Jesus. What a terrifying thought. What a terrifying thought. But that same attribute of Jesus Christ is a comfort to the righteous. It is a comfort to the believer. Why? Because it reminds us that every single sin, brothers and sisters, that we have ever committed, even the ones that we have forgotten about, He knows them all, and our Lord paid for every single one of our sins. He's not ignorant of any of our sins, and He canceled them all. At the cross, a comfort to the believer, a terror to the righteous that he knows our thoughts. All right. He refutes this slander and two counter arguments. First, he makes an argument in verse 25 about divided kingdoms. Jesus teaches that unity is necessary for the continuance of any institution, whether it be families or cities or kingdoms. Let's read it again. Verse 25. 
Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. In other words, Jesus is teaching us, he's reminding his hearers, and he's teaching us through his word, that factions are fatal to institutions. Whether they be small institutions, like a family, like a household, or whether they be huge institutions, political institutions, like a kingdom or a nation. Factions are fatal. In other words, another way to say this is division is a killer at all levels. The small and the great. And what a reminder that principle is to us about the importance of church unity. In other words, you could apply the same principle to local churches. Division kills local churches. A church divided against itself, it cannot stand. It will not stand. This is why God's word in Ephesians chapter 4 gives us a commandment to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You need to feel that as a disciple of Jesus in your bones Factions are a killer of local churches. Division will rip apart every institution. All right. In order for us to understand Jesus' logic, not only do you have this principle, division is a killer, you have to understand that he is assuming a given that all of his hearers would agree to. And here's the given. Satan has a unified kingdom. All right, Jesus is assuming that all the Pharisees that are hearing him, they don't dispute that. In other words, it is a given to Jesus and to all his hearers that there is a unified demonic realm that is 100% unified in opposing God and opposing his purposes. In other words, all the energy, all the focus, and all the power of the demonic realm is in alignment under its king, Satan, to oppose God at every turn. There is a kingdom of darkness, and that kingdom is unified. John 12 refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. John 12, 31. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul calls Satan the God of this world or the God of this age. There's a real kingdom of darkness that's totally opposed to the purposes of God. In other words, there's two kingdoms. One is in perfect unity under, under God. That's the kingdom of God. And the other is in perfect unity under the demonic king, Satan. And Jesus' point here is that, is, is that if he were to be casting out demons by the power of Satan, then that would mean the kingdom of darkness was divided and it would crumble from within. And everybody who heard Jesus knew that that wasn't an option. The kingdom of darkness is not going to crumble from within. And everybody knew it. The only way the kingdom of darkness was going to be defeated was by being overthrown by the power of God. It wasn't a divided kingdom. It was a unified kingdom. Therefore, Jesus cannot be casting out demons by the power of Satan. So he's exposing faulty logic in this passage. It can't work. He's refuting the charges. The second argument is this. Verse 27 Jesus makes an argument regarding Jewish exorcisms. 
And the logic is this. If casting out demons is demonic, if that happens by the power of Satan, then then what power are your followers, Pharisees, the sons of the Pharisees who are acting as Jewish exorcists, what power are they operating by? And we have a lot of extra biblical data that gives us these strange Jewish rituals for exorcisms in first century Israel. Very strange incantations, formulas, you know, prayers. There were Jewish exorcists in this culture. We don't have any evidence that they actually worked, that they actually did drive out demons. In fact, back in Matthew chapter 9, that verse we read, when Jesus drove out, drove out a demon, the crowd said, Has anything ever been done like this in Israel? Where a man just speaks with authority and demons flee from his words. And so Jesus' logic is, well, all these Jewish exorcists are going around and, and are they also operating by the power of the devil? And again, the answer is no. So Jesus refutes the logic of his enemies as faulty. And then in verse 28, he shows them that it is the exact opposite of what they are claiming. He's not doing this by the power of Satan. He has done this sign by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of this miracle. The source of Jesus' power. And we see this theme running through the Gospels that the Lord Jesus Christ is operating, endowed with the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, He was conceived... In the womb of the Virgin Mary because the Holy Spirit overshadowed him. He was conceived by the power of the Spirit. And that same Spirit that overshadowed him at his conception is the Spirit that descended upon Jesus publicly and visibly at the baptism of Jesus Christ. You remember that? Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 3, at the baptism of Jesus The Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And then there were words spoken from heaven. And those words just happened to be a coronation psalm, a messianic psalm. Psalm 2, the words from heaven, you are my son. So the baptism of Jesus functions as his coronation, his public anointing as the king of Israel. And this is the very beginning of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. In other words, we have almost three decades of the life of the God-man that we know very little about. But the moment that the Holy Spirit descends upon him in this public way, it, it is all hands, you know, on deck. He, he, he is pursuing his ministry from this point forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and he says these words The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, I want you to get that visual picture of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Resting upon the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. John says that spirit was given to Jesus without measure. There was a measureless endowment of the power of the Holy Spirit that rested upon the Messiah. And so Jesus is doing His work, His, His powerful miracles 
and the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in our last passage in Matthew 12, one of the things that Matthew says in verse 18, quoting the servant song from Isaiah 42, is I will put my spirit, verse 18, I will put my spirit upon him. And so again, understand this visual picture that that when the Messiah comes, the Spirit is going to rest upon Him. It's going to rest upon Jesus. In fact, all of Jesus' ministry is done in the power of the Spirit. And every time you say the words, Jesus Christ, that's actually exactly what you are proclaiming about Jesus. In other words, that word Christ is a reference to the anointed one. Christ means anointed. When you say Jesus Christ, that's not his last name. That's his title, Jesus, the anointed one. Now the question is, anointed with what? And the answer is, anointed with the Spirit. Every time you say Jesus Christ, you're saying, that Spirit-endowed Messiah, the one that the Spirit rests upon him, given the Spirit, Without measure. Acts chapter 10. This is part of the announcement of the gospel. Peter preaches it this way in Acts chapter 10 verse 37. He says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee. After the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so, do you know this about your Savior? He is the Spirit-soaked Savior. He is the Spirit-drenched Deliverer for the people of God. He is the Spirit-endowed, anointed King of the kingdom of God, anointed with a measurable power, doing all of his works in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus casted out demons in this passage and in others, it shows us that the king of the kingdom of God is actually making an assault. He's advancing his kingdom upon the kingdom of of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. This is what he says in chapter 12, uh, verse 28 again. If, by the, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then Jesus says, what does that mean? It means the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is advancing in your midst. And I want you to understand this. This is a big deal. Exorcisms happen a lot in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you need to understand why. Why? What's going on here? This exorcism is explained by Jesus in verse 29 in the form of a parable. And the point of the parable is simple. Let's read 29 again. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? then indeed he may plunder his house. So the point is simple of this parable. You can only take a strong man's possessions if you first bind the strong man. 
And then after you bind them, you can take the possessions. Jesus is saying, verse 29, in the context of driving out demons. So we need to understand. In this context, here's what Jesus means. He implies to us that the strong man is Satan. The strong man in that parable is Satan. The possessions in that parable are the man who was just delivered by the power of Jesus. And that means that the one doing the bonding of the strong man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so back up for just a minute. When Jesus cast out a demon, it's showing us something about the power of Jesus over the whole demonic realm. If he's taken the strong man's stuff, like the man who's demon-possessed, what is that teaching us about the power of Jesus? It means that he has bound the strong man. Strong man is bound. Jesus is taking his stuff. Not only is the demon bound in this story, but the demon king, Satan, is bound by Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is stronger than Satan. In fact, Luke's version of this parable says, one stronger than he comes along. That's Jesus. He's stronger than the strong man. This is what the exorcisms in the Gospels mean. That the kingdom of God is breaking into this world. The power of the age to come is breaking into this age. And this anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, is revealing His authority over the whole demonic realm. In other words, exorcisms in the Gospels are not just you know fireworks. They're messianic signs. That show us that Jesus is the spirit anointed Messiah with authority over the entire kingdom of darkness. And so what does this mean for us? It teaches us what happened when the Lord Jesus came into this world in his first coming. When Jesus came into this world, he was anointed by the spirit for his earthly ministry. And then he bound Satan at his first coming. He bound the strong man. And what has Jesus been doing ever since then? He's been taking his stuff. He's been plundering his stuff. You say, well, what do you mean? This is a metaphor for what happens every single time someone becomes a Christian. Is Jesus reaches into the kingdom of darkness and takes Satan's stuff. Because he's stronger than the strong man. And this is part of the testimony of every child of God. In fact, Colossians chapter 1 says it this way. Colossians 1, 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You say, man, I didn't even know I was in the domain of darkness. All kind of stuff happened to you when you got saved that you spend the rest of your life learning about from the Word of God. That verse tells us Jesus reached into the domain of darkness and transfers believers into the kingdom of the beloved Son. At the first coming of Jesus, Satan was bound. At the second coming of Jesus, Satan will be destroyed forever. And Jesus, this is no surprise. To those who understand Old Testament prophecy, this is no surprise. Because three chapters in the Bible, just a few verses after sin enters into this world in Genesis chapter 3, God gave that glorious prophecy. And if you've heard it once, you've heard it 
over a hundred times at this church, Genesis 3.15, that prays to the living God of grace that there's one coming from the seed of the woman. And what's he going to do when he gets here? He is going to crush the head of the serpent. He is going to defeat the deceiver, the enemy of God. And the whole Old Testament, we are awaiting him. He is the long-awaited deliverer. And then all of a sudden in his first coming, boom! Skull-crushing seed of the woman is here on planet Earth. He has finally arrived. The fullness of time. The deliverer is here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus is said to have come, listen, in order to destroy the work of the devil. That's his mission. That's his manifesto, you could say. That he's here to undo all the work of the devil. And in his first coming, you need to understand it like an invasion on the kingdom of darkness. To use a World War II metaphor, the first coming is like D-Day. The second coming is like V-Day in Europe. In other words, you need to understand this, that at the first coming of Jesus, there was a decisive, victorious blow delivered to the dominion of darkness. In other words, we're not waiting to the second coming for all the victory and all the defeat to happen. Something's already happened already, and the Bible is clear about this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this, Through death... He, Jesus, destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. That means that when Jesus uh, died for our sins on the cross, He did something to the evil one. He delivered a blow. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, at the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to an open shame. And so something decisive has already happened. The king has come. The king has invaded. And yes, brothers and sisters, yes, the warfare remains. But there is a decisive defeat. The invasion has already happened. Victory is certain. The second coming of Jesus will mean the consummation of the kingdom of God and the final forever defeat. Of the devil. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 says, The devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. In other words, part of the good news, and that's what gospel means good news. We have good news about Jesus Christ. And part of that good news is an announcement that our Lord Jesus is the King who has triumphed over the entire demonic realm. He is victorious. Jesus has defeated and Jesus will defeat the devil. And, and listen, brothers and sisters, He shares this power over the demonic realm with His church. Did you know that? That when, when we are sent into warfare... The Lord Jesus does not send us with our own resources and our own strength to combat the devil, which is why God's word says this in Ephesians 6, verse 10, be strong, listen, in the Lord, in the strength of his might, not in your own strength. He gives you his strength to stand firm in this conflict. You enter into the strength of Christ. 
through union with Jesus. And so Jesus proclaims His glory. It's the exact opposite as they have charged, not by the power of Satan, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the King of the kingdom of God. In these last verses, verse 30 through 37, He makes an announcement as King. And you could even think about it this way. Verses 30 through 37 is Jesus explaining to us what the arrival of the kingdom of God means in this world. In other words, the king is here. What does that mean? And these these verses tell us that it means two things, salvation and judgment. That the king is here to save and the king will return to judge. The kingdom of God means salvation for the people of God and judgment for the enemies of God. Salvation and judgment. And they're both in this passage. Now, there is a glorious promise in verse 31 that is often overlooked. Okay, And the reason why it's overlooked is because it's, it comes right before that warning about the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I want us to understand these words. Just take them from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Look at what He says in verse 31. This is a promise. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. You know, that's the glory of the Christian Gospel. I'll read it again. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Now I want you to notice the wideness of the mercy of God. Every sin will be forgiven. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. You mean every sin? Every sin. And we sing this almost every week. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. In other words, the Christian gospel, the good news, is not that Jesus comes, the King is here to forgive from some sin. But He says every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. We have a glorious gospel that all of our sins can be forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ. And this is glorious. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know how easy it is to get dull to this glory. To get, you know, indifferent to the goodness of the good news. But 1 John says it this way, 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus cleanses us, listen, from all sin. All of it. All of my sin is taken away by my Savior. And all that He requires is faith. That you trust in Him. That you turn away from your sin. And you trust in Jesus to save you. This is the glory of the Gospel. And this is why Jesus came. This is why the King is here. Not to condemn, but to save. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 17. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Did you know that the mercy of God is great? That the gospel offers you forgiveness of every sin that you have ever 
committed. And this is what makes our souls sing. Our souls love the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I, I just ran into a brother a moment ago in the bathroom weeping. You know why? Because he was taking the Lord's Supper. And he was reminded of the sweetness of the forgiveness of God that for over a year he sat in meetings like this and he knew he wasn't saved and he didn't partake and he let it pass by. But he found peace in Christ. He found rest in the gospel of Jesus. And he's there weeping in the bathroom, losing it. Why? Because he knows all of his sin has been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so receive that this morning as encouragement from Jesus. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But... And there is a but in this passage, verse 31. Jesus says, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And that very next verse, verse 32, says that forgiveness of this sin is impossible in this life and in the next. In this age or in the age to come. Mark's Gospel tells the same story and Mark calls this sin an eternal sin. So blasphemy of the Spirit, the unforgivable sin, or an eternal sin. This is what we're talking about this morning. Now this is serious stuff. Terrifying. A sin that you can never be forgiven of. And so we want to understand what it means because this has troubled many, many people. Okay? And we want to understand God's Word. Now, if we were to take a step back from this passage and hover 30,000 feet over God's Word and just you know, reason, you know, uh, like systematic theology, reason, okay, what sin do we know that will, will never be forgiven? We could reason our way to this. Well, we know that if someone never repents and believes the gospel, they will never be forgiven. And that's 100% right. If you never repent, and you never believe the gospel, and you die in that state, you will never be forgiven. Okay, And that's totally true. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. There's no more chance to get right with God after you die. Okay? And so if you die and you haven't repented and believed the gospel, you will never be forgiven. So that's true, but this does not seem to be what Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 12. In other words, Jesus seems to indicate in this passage that there is a sin that once committed, it seals your fate before you die. He calls it an eternal sin, blasphemy of the Spirit, or an unforgivable sin. Now, here's the thing. You know, our minds are racing like, man, what in the world? I want to make sure I don't commit that one, you know? Um, and so we need to understand what this sin is. And the context explains it to us. The context helps us to understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. We know... Let's talk for a minute about what it's not, okay? And just set that to the side. We know 
that the unforgivable sin cannot be rejecting Christ. It can't be. Because there are many Christians that have rejected Jesus some 10, 15, 20 times before they believe, become a Christian, and are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and they're forgiven of all that sin. And that, that's happened generations over the world over. And so it can't be that. It has, it's something else going on here. It can't be mere, you know, gen, rejecting Christ in this general way. We also know that the unforgivable sin cannot be blasphemy. You say, why? Because Jesus just told us in, in verse 31, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. He just told us that blasphemy can be forgiven. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, the Apostle Paul, calls himself, I was a blasphemer and a violent aggressor. And he says, but I found mercy. Paul was forgiven of blasphemy, so it can't be that. And so we have to keep drilling into the context. The context shows us that Jesus' warning about the blasphemy of the Spirit is directly connected to what the Pharisees have just done in our passage. In other words, their actions are what trigger this warning. And so, we need to understand their sin. What is their sin in this passage? Well, it's true that they called something good evil. Okay, And Isaiah says, woe to you if you do that. And that's true that they did sin in that way, but that's not the unforgivable sin. To call something good evil. Think of how many times you may have done that in your life and you're a Christian. Okay, And so it's more specific than that. Yes, they called something good evil. Jesus did a miracle and they called it evil. Something more specific is going on here. And I would take it even further than they call a work of the Holy Spirit evil. It's even more specific than that. In fact, you can think of scenarios, maybe in the Muslim world, where a man's wife comes to Christ, faith in Christ, and this man initially hates it. And he looks at what's going on in his wife, and he's saying, you're being seduced by Satan. And then only to find out a year and a half later, he's now a Christian too, forgiven of all that sin. So it can't be just calling a work of the Holy Spirit evil. That's not the unforgivable sin. Something more specific is happening here. And Mark chapter 3, Mark's version of this account, tells us a very specific phrase that the Pharisees are saying to Jesus. Mark 3 verse 30 says, They were saying to Him, He has an unclean spirit. Boom! Jesus says, there's the trigger for the warning. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In other words, their sin was that they saw the work of the Holy Spirit through Christ... And called it satanic. In other words, in the earthly life of Jesus, the Spirit was bearing witness, this is the Messiah. The Spirit was bearing witness about Jesus with miracles, with signs. The Spirit was giving a testimony in the, the, life, the earthly life of Jesus Christ. It was seen in the form of miracles, the Spirit's testimony. The Pharisees saw that Spirit's testimony about the Messiah and said, that's the work of Satan. This is their sin. Very special circumstances. 
They received more revelation than almost anybody in God's Word. The Word of God incarnate is standing before them. Teaching everything He's saying is the Word of God. And then the Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, begins to bear witness, undeniable witness in the form of miracles. This is the Christ. And they say, Satan, sorcerer. And when they did that, they blasphemed the Spirit's work through Christ. I submit to you, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. Now, I want to mention three aspects of their sin, and I think this is so helpful. Okay, Three aspects of their sin. First, their sin was not a sin of ignorance. And there are all kinds of sins in God's Word that we can commit in ignorance. In other words, like we find out later, oh, I thought I was right, but now I know I'm not right. I was ignorant of that. I still sinned, but I sinned in ignorance. When they rejected Jesus and when they slandered him as satanic, it wasn't like that. They were slandering Jesus knowingly. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells a parable against these Pharisees. It's called the parable of the tenants. And it shows us that these men knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, I know that's a, a, a hard thing to even fit. Like, how can you know that he's the Messiah and still want to kill him? Look at this text. Matthew chapter 21. The parable of the tenants begins in verse 33. Jesus tells a parable of a man who owns a vineyard, goes away into another country, leases out the vineyard, and then begins to send servants back to get a portion of the harvest every year. And when those servants get back to the vineyard, they're rejected and some of them are killed. And so the owner of the vineyard sends more servants. And again, they're rejected and killed. And then look at what happens in verse 37. Finally, he, the owner of the vineyard, sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Verse 38, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have the inheritance. You see how much culpability is in those words? This is the heir. This is the son. Let's kill him. And then jump down to verse 45. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. He told that parable against them. In other words, when he told that parable, he says, that's what you're doing. You know that I'm the heir. You know that I'm the son, but you're trying to kill me anyway. And so I want you to understand about the unforgivable sin, that it's a sin that was committed knowingly, eyes wide open. They knew he was the son and they wanted to murder him. Number two, and this comes off the first one, secondly, they committed it willfully. In other words, these go together. They knew he was the Messiah and they made a willful choice to blaspheme him. The Spirit made it undeniable by miraculous testimony that Jesus was the Christ and they willfully rejected it. Now that's actually helpful for us. It helps us to understand that you never have to worry about committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit accidentally. 
It'll never be something that you commit in this, oops, I didn't realize I did that. It'll never happen like that. It is a knowing, willful act of defiance. Blasphemy of the Spirit, the unforgivable sin. It's never a matter of mere misjudgment of, man, I thought that was satanic. But man, I found out a year later it wasn't satanic. It'll never be like that. It'll always be you knew this was God and you rejected it in defiance. It's not a matter of a lack of discernment, but of willful rebellion, of defiance against God. Third, the Pharisees committed this sin repeatedly. They did it in chapter 9. They did it again in chapter 10. They're doing it again in this passage in chapter 12. In other words, it's not this one time, oops, I did this thing when I was 12 years old and I'll never be right with God. It's a settled in rebellion. It's a settled in hardened rebellion against God. Now, what makes this sin unforgivable? It's unforgivable because this sin hardens the heart to such a point that it never desires repentance. And that's really important. It hardens the heart to such a point that that heart never desires repentance. And so the unforgivable sin will never be, man, I committed this sin when I was 12 and I really want to be forgiven by God, but He won't forgive me. Never. Never. These Pharisees felt no remorse. They only felt murderous hatred towards Christ. They slept fine at night. They weren't bothered by their sin. They weren't tormented of thoughts of being right with God. So know this. What can we take away from the blasphemy of the Spirit? Any sin that you repent of will be forgiven. Any sin. If you repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He will forgive any sin. He will forgive all sin. But those who commit the unforgivable sin are hardened and they will never repent. In other words, the lights go out. They never desire again to be right with God. They're hardened by God. They don't desire to turn away from sin. Now, Jesus does not actually say that the Pharisees committed this sin. It's not explicit you know, in this passage. Maybe they were just getting close to committing this sin and He's giving them a warning like, hey, you're getting close to a line. But I do believe that John 12 shows us that they did commit this sin. They crossed the line of no return. In other words, in the words of John 12, they rejected so much light that they fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. John quotes it. He says, therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This is a warning to us about how we respond to the revelation of God. It's especially a warning to us of kicking against the Spirit of God when we know that we're being convicted of our sin. We know that Christ is being set forth before us as the Messiah. And we know that Jesus is King. But we love our sin too much to bow the knee and follow Him. That is a dangerous thing. Do you understand? That is a sin that can harden your heart. You play around in that area and you might slip into this 
this point of no return. You might never again have an opportunity to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. And that doesn't even mean that you might die on the way home. You might never again feel a desire to be right with God. It's a dangerous thing to mess with. Now, we should understand the special circumstances that would make someone guilty of the unforgivable sin. These are absolutely special circumstances. The physical presence of Jesus and the, the once for all messianic signs, the witness of the Spirit. They really are special and that makes the sin exceedingly rare. But listen, you don't have to commit blasphemy of the Spirit to go to hell. You don't. In fact, Jesus warns in this passage of the coming judgment. Verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And so there's a judgment coming. And, he, and Jesus tells us in, the, in this final paragraph that this judgment, the criteria, will be twofold. We will be judged by God for what we've done and who we are. What we've done, even what we've said, and who we are. And I don't know a more terrifying picture than that. Jesus, you mean we'll give an account of the words we said? You know, the way that we think about guilt is like, you know, man, I made that mistake. You know, and I uttered that phrase, and I'm going to stand before the judge on the final day, and he's going to set that one to the side. He's going to understand. And Jesus says, you're going to give an account of every careless word you've ever spoken. In other words, on the final day, the record is going to be pulled forth and all will be laid bare. And everything you've ever done, including everything you've ever spoken, you'll be held accountable for. And even more fundamentally than what you've done or what you've said, we will be judged based off of who we are. Because what you've done reveals who you are. Fruit reveals the root. Look at what he says in verse 35. The words that you speak, what do they reveal about you? They reveal your heart. It's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Verse 33. Jesus says you're either a good tree bearing good fruit, or you're either a bad tree bearing bad fruit. And that's so helpful for us. You need two things. You, we all need forgiveness for the things that we have done. And the only place to find this forgiveness is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only place to find it. But listen, if all you had was forgiveness and the slate was wiped clean forever for everything you've ever done, what about who you are? How can a depraved, corrupt sinner enter into the presence of God forever? Do you understand you need forgiveness and you need to be made new? You need to be changed. You need to be transformed. And Jesus teaches us this in John 3, that you must be born again or you will never see the kingdom of God. And the only place to find new life, eternal life, regeneration, and the new birth is the same place. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here again, we see Jesus. We saw Him do this uh, so much in Matthew chapter 12 that he places all humanity in these two categories. Makes it so simple for us. 
Verse 33, you're either a good tree or a bad tree. And there are no exceptions in this room this morning. You're either a good tree bearing Christian fruit or you're a bad tree bearing bad fruit. And that's so helpful for you to understand. Okay? That becoming a Christian is not fixing your life. Okay, i got to fix my life. It's been said this way. I think this is so helpful. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Your nature needs to be transformed by the power of the Gospel. You're either a good tree or a bad tree. And then in verse 30, Jesus says you're either with Him or against Him. And that's where we're going to end our time this morning. That you are either with Jesus or you are against Jesus. And I want to especially apply that to anybody who's on the fence about Christ. Because we got in this passage, we got this heinous sin, unforgivable sin of blasphemy of the Spirit. And Jesus says, all you have to do to be in that same group is, is not to be with me. If you're not with me, you're in, you're in the same group. You're a lot, there are two kingdoms. Kingdom of God, kingdom of Satan. And you may have never committed the blasphemy of the Spirit, but if you're not with me, you're against me. In other words, there is no neutrality towards the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be neutral about so many things in this world. You don't have to have an opinion about everything. But if you're neutral to Jesus, Jesus says you're not actually neutral. You're against me. In other words, to come into the church and to consider the gospel over and over again and to kind of peek your head in and say, yeah, I'm kind of thinking about this. I'm kind of on the fence. There is no fence. If you're not with Jesus, you are against Jesus and aligned with the kingdom of darkness. So I'll close with these words. Come to Christ with faith. Follow Him. Deny yourself. Come after Him as King of kings. Love Jesus. Serve Jesus. Bow before Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. Why? Because if you're not with Him, He says you're against Him. All right, let's pray. Father, we lift up our souls to You this morning. God, and we pray that You would glorify the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ in this church. Lord, we pray that You would glorify the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.